Welcome to the OA Serenity Sunday Meeting Podcast. Serenity Sunday is now hybrid, meeting in person at Roxbury Park in Beverly Hills and on Zoom. Visit the Los Angeles Intergroups webpage at oalaig.org for information on how to join our meeting live in either iteration. Now that we're meeting in person, Serenity Sunday has regular meeting expenses and would appreciate Seventh Tradition donations to help support the meeting and this podcast. You can donate via Venmo at Serenity Sunday. Last four digits of the phone number are 6255 or through PayPal, Serenity Sunday 1212 at gmail.com. The opinions expressed on the Serenity Sunday podcast are those of the individual speaker and not those of Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. And now, our speaker. I'm really, really glad to be here. I live in Scottsdale, Arizona, and uh, I don't normally get out to Serenity Sunday, so through the magic of the internet, here I am. I always hear you guys talk about some of these meetings that have these crazy names. We have, we're very weird here in Arizona. If there's a meeting at two o'clock at the North Scottsdale Fellowship Club, we call it the two o'clock at the North Scottsdale Fellowship Club. We're just weirdos over here. I don't know. But, uh, or if it's at four o'clock, we call it the four o'clock. We're just very strange out here. I think it's the Chicago influence more than anything that keeps us weird over here. But anyway, I'm, I'm real glad to be here with all of you. And, uh, I came here very, very naturally. I was a compulsive overeater from the moment I was born. This disease has ransacked my life and degraded me and thrown me into positions of humiliation from the moment I was born. I have very vivid memories of doctors and adults and people screaming at my mother and father from the time I was four or five years old. How are you letting him get so fat? What are you feeding this kid? What the heck is going on over there? Why are you letting him get so fat? And my mother and father were, were obese as well. My dad, not as much as my mom. And they didn't know what to do with me either because when it came to food, I was like a wild animal. I was like, absolutely like a wild animal. And there just never was enough. And the more I ate, the more I wanted. And the more I wanted, the more I ate. And it, it was just endless. And um, there was no stopping me. And I, I remember there were a couple of things that always scared the living daylights out of me more than just about anything else. And believe me, I was plenty scared because I became an object of ridicule at a very early age. Fatty, fatty, two by four was tame compared to what I faced in life and what I was going to face in life. Um, this disease did more than make me fat. And somebody very wise said to me a long time ago on a freezing cold winter night, she said, if all this disease did was make you fat, it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world to live with. It's the self-loathing that it, that it fostered within me. It's the fear that I had of girls. It's the fear that I had of anybody. It's the fear that I had of the unknown, the untested, the untried. Strangers scared the crap out of me from the time I was a kid. Thank God they don't anymore. But this disease ransacked me at a very, very early age. And as I say, I was an object of ridicule from the very beginning. Doctors, go. there were two things that scared me. 
scared me more than anything. Buying clothes and going to the doctor. Buying clothes was a adventure in terror. There was never anything that fit. There was never anything that looked good. There was never anything that looked remotely like what the other boys were wearing. And uh, I was wearing pants that went out of style before World War II. Uh, my dad would take me down to Albany Park. There's there's neighborhoods in Chicago. We're a city of neighborhoods. And I, I lived in West Rogers Park. I went to Mather High School, if that means anything to any of you. But we would go down to Albany Park and Mr. Bryskin would get my dad clothes that went out of style in the 19, early 40s, late 30s. And that was what I could wear. So I had to wear it. And I didn't look like the other kids in, 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 in any best case scenario. And it was torture. It was hell. I couldn't really fit in the seats in school. Uh, I was in a lot of physical pain. But the worst thing was for the time I was in school, I just could not eat. And that was torture. And the what was worse than that was the absolute abuse that I went through because I was fatter than the other kids. Thank God I had friends and thank God that uh, I survived. When I was nine years old, 1963, right before Kennedy was assassinated, I went to the doctor with my mother and uh, the doctor started screaming at my mother in Yiddish and my mother started screaming at him in Yiddish. And the next thing I knew, I was nine years old and I'm on heavy duty amphetamine. I'm on diet pills and I am on pills that not only kill your appetite, but they kill your brain too. Um, the, the chatter that was going in my head, that, that was going through my head. I was nine years old. I didn't know any better. I didn't have a clue what was going on, but I did know that I did not want to eat while I was on these pills. And for me, that was a miracle. You sleep about 15, 20 minutes a month. Uh, you, you cannot hear anything that anybody is saying to you. It sounds like Charlie Brown's teacher. Wah, 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 wah. I'm getting into fights at school. I'm an eater. I'm not a fighter. I'm getting into fist fights every day at school. They're calling my mother. They're, you know, they're calling my dad and I am just out of control, but I lost weight and I didn't eat. Marilyn Monroe died in 62 this was 63. By 64, some of the information was getting back to the Midwest as to how devastating these drugs were. And uh, I was taken off pink pills, big pink pills that you took three times a day. And I was given blue pills that you took four times a day. And it had exactly the same effect. You just, you did not eat. And when these pills would wear off, it was like, I don't know how to describe it. If you've ever been on diet pills, you know what I'm talking about. It's like the roller coaster coming down to an abrupt stop. You're on this roller coaster and you're going down, 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 and you're going faster and faster and faster. And then all of a sudden you better have your seatbelt on because this thing is going to come to a halt. And when that thing came to a halt, I ate Illinois and some of Wisconsin before I would even come up for air. Because what I didn't know at that time was something that it took me years to learn is that food was never the problem in the first place, that food was the solution to the problem. And if food was my problem, I wouldn't be a compulsive overeater. I would be a heavy eater, a moderate eater, 
but food was the solution to my problem. And if food is the solution, then what's the problem? The problem was the buildup of everyday normal human emotion. Now, Dr. Silkworth tells us in the doctor's opinion that men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. I was looking for the effect from those Oreo cookies. I wasn't looking for the crappy Twinkies or the crappy Fritos. I was looking for what those Fritos could do for me and what they did for me. Because even as a child, I was and as I said before, if all the food did was make me fat, but there are other things that this disease does to you. It makes me extremely uncomfortable with my environment. That's why selfishness is described in the big book as the first defective character in, in chapter five, because that selfishness is the script. I could arrange the ballet. If I could arrange the scenery, the actors, then everything would be okay. If you would stop picking your nose and you would stop nagging me about eating and you would shut up and you would start talking, it appeared to me that everything would be okay and it would not. But those Twinkies, those Suzy Qs, that chocolate milk for about nine seconds gave me euphoria. And what they did for me was so wonderful that I chased it to the gates of insanity or death. I was kicking in the door to the Malchamovitz, the angel of death. By the time I was a teenager, it got markedly worse, markedly worse, because there I was going through puberty. And if somebody would have told me you are not going to go on your first date with a girl till you're 35 years old, I would have taken a shard of glass and cut my throat. I had the same feelings as all the other boys. I had the same desires as all the other boys, but I had no way to act on. Those girls wanted nothing to do with me. Zero, nada. The only time they knew I was alive was when they wanted to ask me something about one of my friends. That's the only time they knew I was alive. Trust me. And when my friends, who are no funnier or no smarter than I, would tell dumb jokes, these girls would flip their hair and laugh and giggle. And I'm thinking, he ain't that funny. What I didn't realize was there was something going on that I did not ever experience until way, way later in my life. This disease isolates. A good abuser takes you and isolates you from your support. It isolates you from any help that you may get. And the disease, the first thing it does is it amputates you from society. The ego has three jobs, make me right, make me feel good right now, and make me different from everybody else. And in my tempestuous ego's rage, I was different from everybody else. I was either smarter than you, or you were way smarter than me, and I wanted you to take care of me, or I would ridicule you in my mind. I could not look at the world and see people people. I looked at the world and I saw taskmasters and abusers. Now, where did I get that? I got that from my father because my father came out of Europe in 1914, the sole survivor of a family of 40 people. He was the only one that lived through the murder and the mayhem. Think Fiddler on the Roof, not Schindler's List. 
Schindler. That was a long, that was way off in the future. There was a graveyard in Europe for people like me long before World War II ever came around. Trust me on that one. He was the sole survivor of a family of 40 people. They were murdered in their home for no other reason than they celebrated different holidays than the people in their village. He got to the boat in Baltic, the Baltic Sea, as he was instructed to do. He didn't have a ticket. He had no money. He had blood all over him from the murder that he had ran from at his home. And a guy who I owe my life to lifted up the rope as the ship was pulling out and said, go ahead, go ahead. And my dad crawled in there and he got on the ship and he made it to this country or I wouldn't have been born. The odds against me being born zillion to one, considering my mother and father were born 10,000 miles away from each other. But anyway, well, that's pretty true for all of us anyway. But the bottom line is this disease is a good abuser. It, is, it isolates you. It amputates you from any support. And when the ego says I'm different, that prevents me from seeking help. That prevents me because I'm different. You don't understand I'm different. One of my idols was Clancy Immeslin. I listened to his podcast for years, and he said, every alcoholic that goes to God in the disease after coming in here to AA, God says, I sent you a book. I sent you meetings. I sent you a sponsor. And the guy says to God, you don't understand. My case is different. My case is not different. Food was the solution to my problem. And I came in here after a torturous, murderous life. My mom died when I was 22. My dad died when I was 24. They left me with nothing. I was 335 pounds as a senior in high school. I was 500 pounds by the time I was a sophomore in college. I was 600 pounds by the time I graduated college. And I was to get up to 700 pounds. I went on my first date when I was 35. I had dime and penny size ulcers in the back of my legs where the pus used to run out. I couldn't stand. I couldn't sit. The swelling in my lower extremities was so profuse that I contracted cellulitis and staph infection, and I almost died in a hospital. My desire to die outweighed my desire to live by a million times. I saw no point to life. If I can't eat, and I can't, no, I can't live without the food, then what is the point of living? I did not want to live. There was one ember of my soul that had not been charred by my desire to die. I was broke. I lied when the truth would have served me better. I wore no underwear. I had towels shoved between large layers of flab to prevent contact dermatitis, the flab rubbing together. My stomach would come down to my knees when I would sit in a chair. I couldn't sit. I couldn't get in a car. I couldn't get out of a car. I couldn't go to the movies. I couldn't fit in the seats. I was an object of ridicule. This cannot be what God had intended for me at any level. If there is an F this God, I want nothing to do with him. And on February 2nd, 1979, some very, very good friends that I owed money to dragged me by the ear to a meeting of Overeaters Anonymous at the, at the uh, uh, Orchard Mental Health Center in Skokie, Illinois. 
freezing cold. The streets were full of ice. And I had to go to these damn meetings because I owed them money. I didn't really understand what they were saying. I was 24 years old. My dad had just died months, a couple of months before. I didn't want to be there. I would eat my way to the meetings. I would pray for a Russian airstrike during the meetings, and I would eat my way home. I thought this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. All of you have had sex. All of you have kissed boys or girls. All of you have Cadillacs and Lincolns and all this other. People like me didn't drive Fords in those days, trust me. But you guys all have Cadillacs and all this other stuff. If I had money like you, I wouldn't be here. But by and by, you gave me a book. And by and by, you gave me a way of life. You held my hand when no one else would. You, I did face some fat prejudice within OA. I did face some fat prejudice and ridicule within these rooms. But by and large, you created a safe place for me. I don't have much time left. I can't go into all this other, all the, 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 the details or whatever. But the bottom line is, for those of you who may be new or maybe not so new, this is the greatest way of life imaginable. Yes, I've lost a little over 500 pounds. And yes, I have 23 years of, of beautiful abstinence. But it is a way of life. It is a way of living that works in rough going. It is the greatest fellowship. I can't wait to get to the OA birthday in Los Angeles in January, the 13th, 14th, and 15th. I can't wait to get, I'm going to White Plains, New York to do a big book workshop. I can't wait to get, now I hate the travel. I hate the planes. I, I, it beats me down. But when I'm there, it's fabulous. If somebody could, could tell me that one day I wouldn't hate myself, if one day I would be able to go to a normal store, every garment that I'm wearing now, and I'm not going to get up and model it for you, but every garment that I'm wearing now is from a normal store, a normal place. I can walk. I walked three miles this morning without stopping. I do that six days a week. Now, I'm not Speedy Gonzalez. I'm 68 years old. It takes me an hour and a half, an hour and 24, 25 minutes, but I do it six days a week. And I have a life that works. Yes, there's things about my life that I wish desperately were different. I have a daughter, doesn't like me anymore, won't talk to me anymore. I wish I had a wife. I wish I had a million dollars so I could freaking retire and not work anymore. I wish the Cubs would win the pennant every year. But that's not, and the Bears, I wish they'd win the Super Bowl like 70 years in a row, but that's probably not going to happen. But if it does, I can go to the stadium because my life works. I can pay for a ticket. I can sit in a seat. I can get in and out of a car. I can go to the movies and I can sit in a seat. I can walk down the street 
And I'm not ridiculed because I don't stick out like I did. Nobody, children used to point at me and laugh at me. And adults used to come up and slap my ass and slap my stomach and say, why are you so fat? Why don't you go on a diet? I was in this program doing the right things. I lost 200 pounds and I was still a 500 pound man. I lost 300 pounds and I was still a 400 pound man. It's a miracle. I did not take my life. How I didn't kill myself, I don't know, but I'm here. And one of the things I experienced in my life is most of, not all, most of the people that my dad knew at, when I was a child were survivors of the Holocaust and survivors of the same murder and mayhem that he survived. And they would grab my face and say, live until you die. And I thought live until you die meant you eat all the Charleston chews and Butterfingers you can get your hands on. What they mean is go out and live your life. In other words, don't live to recover. Recover to live. Go live life. Don't sit in your house and just be stark, raving, abstinent and fill your life with people. This is it. This is not a dress rehearsal. This program gave me the ability to like myself, to be okay in my skin and to like and respect others. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. I have 20 minutes. I don't have 80 minutes or 10 years. So I'm going to pass with that because my time is up. 